Would you pray with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, in our worship, we have given ourselves to you. We've lifted up our hearts to you. As a living sacrifice, uh, an offering with a pulse and a beat. And I pray, Lord, as you speak your word to us here now, that uh, you would order the rhythm of our beating hearts, that, Lord, we might be able to match you, uh, a match of grace and of, 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 of that very character of heaven, so that, Lord, what we present to you is a heart of, of peace and of goodness, of gentleness and of kindness, a, a heart, Lord, that, that beats to the rhythm of the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, in the time that uh, I've shared with you here at Ebenezer, it's been about three years, it's really warmed my heart uh, at the number of you who have asked about my life and and family. And I'm happy to share uh, the joys that my wife and I have. And by the way, one of my joys is that it's my wife's birthday today. uh, She actually chose to come to church with me and and hear me preach. (laughs) Yeah, was that... That was applause for going to church, wasn't that? Yeah, isn't that something uh, she, she normally does. Um, but what, what I wanted to share with about, about the two of us is that we have five grandchildren. And the first three are the cutest little girls on the planet. All three of them uh, were uh, born within a year of each other. They're aged three, three, and four. And I am surrounded by women. Uh, but, but, but help is on the way, uh, uh, because in the last year and a half, we have also then welcomed two little boys into the family fold. But I got to tell you, they have no idea what they're getting themselves into. Okay. My grandgirls are, in fact, the bomb. And it is with them in mind that in picking an Old Testament character for this particular morning, I had no problem, no trouble in making a choice. You see, one of the things that I've learned is that I am not just surrounded by little girls. I am a captive of princesses. Now, somebody asked me this morning when they saw this picture, they said, which one of them gave me the cold that I had last spring? And I, my answer is all of them, actually. Uh, I am surrounded and am captive of these little princesses. And because of that, I am learning a lot. I have become an expert in the biographies of Snow White, Rapunzel, Ariel, Belle, Cinderella, Aurora, who is also known as Briar Rose, or better yet, as Sleeping Beauty. And oh, how, I dare, how dare I not mention Elsa and Anna. I have read their stories weekly. And over, the, over, over, over a year ago, my wife and I were actually at a Goodwill store down in Phoenix, Arizona, it was right after Halloween, and, 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 and there I spied a, a rack full of Disney princess dresses, and, and I bought five of them. Uh, so we have little fashion shows at home, and I still remember as I was standing at the checkout line, there was a guy behind me who was really giving me the eye, like, boy. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, man, it's all the rage. It is just, it's all good. And it is. I mean, after all, who isn't moved by the story of a princess? by the thought of true beauty. Who isn't moved by a happily ever after story? I mean, deep down, we thrill to see things work out for the truly beautiful. We we, we thrill to see cruel stepsisters get their comeuppance 
as Cinderella, who is kind and simply beautiful, wins the heart of a handsome prince. It is a drama that wraps us up because we know how it, how it feels to be on our knees, scrubbing away uh, the dirt from the floor with a heartache that has left us in rags. And we long, like Cinderella, to have a sparkle of magic to turn our pumpkins into coaches and our mice into footmen. We, we all truly yearn for true beauty to be recognized and then radiate uh, throughout the kingdom. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, wouldn't you? Uh, do such things just happen in fantasy land? No, I tell you, no. <laughs> and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25 in order to add a real live princess to your list of the heroines of faith. There we find the lead actress, Abigail, playing an Academy Award-winning Oscar role that is the envy of every little girl and grandpa too. So let's get started. In the first three verses of uh, the first, of 1 Samuel chapter 25, in the first three verses we find the primary cast of characters for this Oscar-winning drama. Listen as I read verse 1. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness in Paran. Well, there's the first character. There he is, Prince Charming. David, a man after God's own heart, soon to become the king. But at, at, at the moment, he is just the leader of a happy band of about 600 mighty men living in the hills of Judea, uh, uh, semi-fugitives, really on probation, trying to stay out of the way of King Saul. And you can read about how that happened in chapter 24 on your own. But let me keep going. In verse 2, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. How rich was he? Well, he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And there he is, the villain of the story. Can we hiss? The villain of the story is right there. Look at verse 3. His name was Nabal. And we go on, he was a man who was harsh and evil in all of his dealings. Boo. And the third character, well, verse 3. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. And she was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. (laughs) I like the way the story begins. It's like reading the opening credits of a movie uh, with two leading men, David and Nabal. And oh, by the way, there she is on the edge like Cinderella. Uh, There's Gabigail. And, And for the moment, that's where she remains, on the edge, like a supporting actress while the crisis unfolds. What we read then in verse 2 is where David finally got attention in verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, and so he sent ten young men to Carmel with a message, visit Nabal and greet him in my name. Now, a little bit of explanation is in order to be able to understand the, the sheer drama that is taking place here. The hills where David and his mighty men were camping were the very same hills where Nabal and I suppose any other wealthy sheep owner of the day would send their flocks to graze and get fat during the grazing and fattening season. 
And in order to make a living, David and his merry band were served like security guards for the flocks. And they provided protection for the shepherds and the sheep. It was a respectable courtesy service, and they were kind of like the guardian angels over the flocks and over the shepherds who were doing their job. They didn't have to do it, but they did. And the businessmen of the day who owned the sheep not only appreciated their service, but then would reward them for their efforts and do it with gifts, kind of like tipping a really good waiter. And, And given the custom of the day, it wasn't required by the businessmen, but it was certainly appreciated. So the time had finally come when the herds were ready for market and had been led home, and we get that idea because they were finally being sheared. And while it's not being recorded here, it's not hard to imagine that all of the wealthy businessmen had in fact given David a tip and maybe a nice little thank you note to pass on to the rest of the crew. All that is, except for one, a man in Mun whose business was in Carmel, Now, let me me just pause here to add a little bit of color to the scene as well. This guy's business may have been in Carmel, but he he lived in the ritzy suburb of Mound. It's almost like he lived in the British properties of Vancouver. And, And when you read that he was very rich, the Hebrew word literally translates as the word heavy, which means he was loaded. Okay, you get this idea? Get the picture? Now let me add one more detail. His name was Nabel, which is really ironic here because in the Hebrew, the word literally means fool or foolish one. I, I mean, this is, is this perfect for a prince's story or not? I mean, it's almost like the villain in a Disney movie being called Cruella de Vil. Here we have Nabel, the fool. And I suppose it's no surprise what happens next. David sends his ten young men with specific instructions to tactfully, tactfully jog Nabal's memory. Now, as I read this, it makes, it makes for a really interesting business case study. He didn't come himself in order to create a scene. He, he, he sent ten young men humbly. And the question is, why ten? Well, the idea is that the tip would probably be a number of sheep and goats, and so there would take at least ten of them to wrangle the, the livestock back to Judah. So ten young men with gracious words, we see that in verse 6, words of peace, have a long life, peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace to all that you have, in verse 8. And they even said the magic word, please, Please give whatever you find at your hand to your servants and to David. The response, verse 10. And here you have to have a a, a tone of voice to get the impact. David, who's he? Who does he think he is? Even more, who are you? And in verse 11, well, I've got to pause there a little bit because he calls them a, a, a really a very nasty name which the Bible has sanitized a bit by implying that they were <clears throat> men of whose origin is unknown. You can fill in the blanks as to what that name would be. And in verse 13, you get the idea right away that this did not sit well with David. The young men returned with their report, and as you can easily imagine, it aroused David's anger. 
He doesn't know me? Well, we can solve that one real quick. And turning to his men, his mighty men, he lines up 400 and tells them to load up their swords and join him as he goes about making Nabal's acquaintance. <laughs> Have you, are you enjoying the story so far? Yeah? My guess is that if anyone here has ever been slighted, ever been cheated, ever been subject to disrespect, bullied or bruised, you might find yourself at the end of verse 13 begging David, hey, take me with you. I enjoy seeing a little bit of justice meted out. I wouldn't mind joining in in a little bit of righteous wrath falling down on heaven. I got my sword. It's girded. I'm ready to go. But that's not what God had in mind. And here is where our hero, or better yet, our heroine, steps forward to reveal the true beauty and intentions of a godly heart. In verse 14, Abigail is alerted to the situation. A young man, probably one of Nabal's shepherds, told Abigail, Behold, David has sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. He scorned them, and even though they were very good to us and and well-treated, and and we didn't miss a thing while we were with with them. You get the idea that they did a good job as security guards there? Verse 16, they were like a wall to us both by night and day, all the time that we were with them tending the sheep. But, and I paraphrase, now they're coming armed to the teeth, and Nabal doesn't get it. In fact, he is such a worthless man, no one can speak to him. Now, we may have been introduced to her in verse 3 as a woman of intelligence and beauty. And and you may even add to that the qualities that are implied by her name. That name is a beautiful name. I chose that name for our daughter as well. I'm sorry, we chose that name for our daughter as well. Because the word Abigail literally means my father's joy. Isn't that that just, that just sparkles, doesn't it? Intelligence, beauty, a joy to be near. Now, however, we see that it is more than just a name. When I first read this, I thought that if Abigail had been like any other woman, trapped in an unhappy marriage to a miserable man, it would have been understandable for her to sit back and then Let nature take its course. But instead, she is no ordinary woman. Spiritually, we discover that in character, she is a princess with a divinely royal heart as she steps in selflessly to make peace. Verse 18, she whips up a feast. And in verse 20, she rides out on a donkey, rushing down a hidden path in the mountain in order to cut David and his little army off at the pass. Can you picture this scene? A simple woman facing down the equivalent of an angry biblical motorcycle gang. (laughs) Uh, But what could have been an explosive situation was suddenly diffused by Abigail's simple humility and gentle honesty. Verse 23, When she saw David, she dismounted and she bowed to the ground. And she she fell to his feet and she said this, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And then she goes on to say what everybody already knows. My husband is a Nabal (laughs) and has lived up to his name. If only your men had come to me, I would have seen things right. So it's my fault. Let me make it up to you. That's my paraphrase. 
As one commentator wrote, Abigail showed remarkable wisdom in her approach. Knowing that David was rightfully angry, she had planned that speech that would crack the tough shell of his hostility. (laughs) Would that we all would have the same sort of wisdom. Would that we all had that same sort of tact. Would that we all have the presence of mind to be able to frame, to compose, and then speak words of gentleness and grace. Her tact revealed a heart of wisdom, but it also revealed a heart of faith. Look at verse 26 and 28 through 28. She credited God for keeping David from acting out in sin. Again, let me paraphrase verse 27. The Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and avenging yourself by your own hand. It's as if she is saying this, I'm not the one stopping you. I'm just a woman on a mission from God. I'm, I'm not here just to save my husband's life. I am here to serve God. And in serving God, David, I am saving your future as well. Look at verses 30 and 31. And it came about when, when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you to be ruler of Israel that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to you, my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by having my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. That's what she says. As one commentator has put it, this is perhaps the most poignant point that she makes when she reminds David that he is next in line for the throne and that consequently he needed to keep his record clear. And an act like this would sully it. That eventually he would become king and would have more than his share of burdens without having to add to the grief and regret of a troubled heart should he continue with his journey of revenge. So let it go, David. God has greater plans for you. Let it go, David. You don't need to carry this as a record on your heart. Let it go, David. A heart of wisdom and and a heart of faith. Would it be fair to say that with a perspective like this, she could be also then called, probably even better than David at this point, a woman after God's own heart. There's a saying that beauty is skin deep, but for Abigail, as a woman of God, it it goes as deep as the heart. Now, it may not have been written in the Bible, but I cannot help but think that there's a pause at the end of verse 31. Where David, sitting on the saddle of his war horse, begins to soften and melt. And as he softens, his heart begins to melt and he lets go of this vow of violence and he starts to come back to his senses. The fury of his anger begins to dissipate and it's an incredible picture that is is there. And standing there between Nabal and David, between a pompous fool and an angry man, was this very simple, courageous, brave, and radiant woman of God. And then the next words are spoken in verse 32. They reveal the result. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Thrice blessed. Do you see that? Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. And oh, by the way, thanks for the meal. (laughs) You see that in verse 35? He received from her hand what she had brought to him, which... Back in verse 18 was 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep kebabs, five measures of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. Yum. This is a feast that is fit for a king, or at least a future king, and all of his mighty men. And at the end of verse 38, we read, peace, peace, go home in peace. I have listened to you and I've granted your request. We're done here. Uh, Bless you. Now at this point, were this to be the tale of a fairy princess, you would probably expect verse 39 to read something like this. And they lived happily ever after. But that's not the case. Verse 36, when Abigail arrives home, mission accomplished, what does she find? (laughs) Well, in her absence, Nabal has thrown a party and is drunk as a skunk. How is that for thanks? Keep that in mind the next time that you're called by God to do something heroic. Do not expect immediate results. Doing the right thing is its own reward, especially when it is done in obedience to God's claim on your life. So what does Abigail do? Well, here's the rest of the story. She she waits until the next morning, and then she tells him of her encounter with David. And upon hearing it, Nabal is, as it says here, seized with fear, and he falls into a coma. Ten days later, God intervenes, as we read in verse 38, as he dies. And reading that, you might think, so much for the happily ever after. Well, hold on for just a second, because in verse 39 we read, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord. (laughs) And he sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. And in response to the proposal, verse 42, Abigail said, yes. And as the verse ends, she became his wife. And thus, we end our story as the happy couple rides off into the sunset. Let the credits roll. Which leaves us really then to reflect on a couple of things, a couple of number of lessons. Let me just share two. The quality of Abigail's character reveals so much about the quiet nature of true grace. Of true grace and wisdom, especially the sort of wisdom that brings peace to a crisis. So the first principle to take to heart is when pressed to react, pause to reflect. A wise response to conflict means looking at both sides of the problem, setting yourself aside, restraining yourself from being too hasty in judgment, and praying for a perspective that comes from above. If Abigail had been a disciple of Machiavelli or a devotee of Lady Macbeth, she could easily have been tempted to exploit the situation for her own advantage by stepping aside and letting David settle his score, even conspire with him to rid herself of this pompous fool. But that is not God's way. 
And you can't walk away from this story without seeing the Lord at the center of her strategy. Throughout her appeal, it was the Lord who guided her words. Verse 26, as the Lord lives. Verse 28, the Lord will certainly make for you David an an enduring house. Verse 30, the Lord shall do for you, David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel. All of her thoughts were composed and shaped by the Lord who loved her and his plan for David's life. So when pressed to react, she paused to reflect and take what the Lord had to say to heart. The second principle to take to heart is that when pushed to respond, pray to be gracious. One of the good things about a great story is that it lingers in the mind. And as I think of Abigail, I have to think that her actions did not come as a surprise. Her tact, her initiative, her obedience, her humility, all of it reflected authentic character. She was who she was. And it's not hard to imagine how that character had been forged. I have to assume that having lived with Nabal, she had plenty of opportunity, ample opportunity, to choose which direction her heart would grow. And so daily, with prayer and a growing reliance upon the Spirit of God, she chose to grow in his direction and became a living illustration. A living illustration, really, of what the Apostle Peter would then describe in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4. Let your beauty be, a, be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is precious in the eyes of God. For in this way, in formal times, the holy women also put their hope in God and with that they used to adorn themselves. So as the credits run and the prince rides on her donkey into the sunset there to meet the princess, or the princess rides her donkey into, to meet her prince, I can almost hear Peter's voice being the narrator, bringing the story to the close with those verses. To sum it up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose, to inherit a blessing. So bless the Lord and bless you and bless you and bless you and may we all live happily ever after. Would you pray with me? In gracious Heavenly Father, our hearts now are now in your hand. Mold us and shape us as you will. Send your spirit to raise up a fruit within our life, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. All these things that please you, but all these things, Lord, which reflect you and your purposes as well. And we give ourselves to that, Lord, in all these things, in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.